Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome again to New Books in Sociology, where each episode we talk to the author of a recently published sociology book. My name is David Philippi, and I'll be your host this week as we hear from Francesco Duina, author of Winning, Reflections on an American Obsession, published by Princeton University Press. In his book, Duina deconstructs the familiar concepts of winning and losing and finds that there are a number of very different paths to becoming a winner and a variety of prizes at stake when we enter into competition. Behind our drive to win, he claims, is our desire for differentiation, the longing to be set apart from the rest, and to prove to others and ourselves that we are legitimate and right. Duina compares America to Denmark and finds that not all societies share equally in this obsession. We talk about actor Charlie Sheen's obsession with winning, and President Obama's recently adopted slogan, Winning the Future, few examples of the way our language perpetuates a distorted mindset of competition. Duina suggests that the pursuit of victory in every area of life is probably a bad way to pursue happiness and urges us to reconsider the way we think about winning and losing. Let's hear what he had to say. So, Francesco, it's good to talk to you again. It's uh, good to talk to you. It's kind of funny now the title of your book almost seems prophetic with what's been in the news lately with uh, Charlie Sheen in particular, but also starting with President Obama's State of the Union address back in January, this new slogan about winning the future. Um, If there were any skeptics about whether Americans are actually obsessed with winning, I think the last couple of months have uh, been a good example of what this is all about. But obviously, these came after you wrote your book. So could you tell us a little bit about your motivations in writing the book? Well, sure. Um, the stuff that you're mentioning right now with regard to the last few months are, in fact, not very unusual in uh, American history, or especially the recent history, I would say, but even just generally speaking, American history. So they may seem um, sort of to the point or on point if for someone who has read the book, and they may seem to stand out, but only because it's sort of hopefully with the book I have sort of emphasized them, and so people now are more in tune or attuned in, you know, and, and pay attention to it. But as a matter of fact, if you had read the book five years ago, uh, you would have also noted right there and then and afterwards lots and lots of incidents or examples of uh, demonstrations that uh, what I talk about the book is, in fact, quite a prevalent uh, attitude and language. So with that said, I think the primary reason for writing the book was, in fact, about five, six, seven years ago, a realization that uh, we are, as a society, indeed uh, obsessed with uh, winning at all levels and in all spheres of our society, whether it's education or politics or economics, and that uh, the language of it permeates just about everywhere. Um, I remember a few incidents that were especially that stood out in my mind that sort of compelled me to write it. One uh, was when Michael Jordan won his fifth championship in the NBA, and uh, the season we had just finished, and uh, he was still sweating with uh, confetti falling from the sky, and 
holding on to the trophy and um, the season just finally ended and um, in front of the cameras, the first thing he did was to flash six with his fingers as if to say, uh, now that I've won just five, I'm going to win another one next year. As if the whole year had suddenly been canceled or erased and uh, suddenly he was looking forward and I sort of stopped at that and, and wondered, what is the logic of such a statement and uh, what, where does the past go and why why six better than five? And other instances like that where similar thoughts came to mind, you know, whether it was posters in my kids' daycare where you walk down the hall and there are posters of kids, you know, I have small children. The posters said, we are super kids. Or, uh, you know, other other examples where we, you know, whether it was in Kuwait or uh, in uh, in Iraq as well, where we sort of were adamant about, or even our reaction to 9-11, you know, and we were adamant about saying we're gonna, you know, we're not gonna solve. It wasn't we're gonna find out why the why the terrorists did this, and we're gonna even punish them. It was really about we're gonna win this. This is a war, and we're gonna win it. And I would add to that that I spent a year in Denmark, where uh, hopefully we're gonna talk about this later. But the attitude towards winning in Denmark and towards competition was so different. And I spent the year writing this book. Most of it I was in Denmark and uh, was exposed to a very different culture there, a much less competitive culture. One of the things I've noticed since I've been thinking about this is that the argument isn't necessarily that that we work harder or that other societies aren't competitive. Um, a few a few people that I've talked to about this topic and about your book have kind of been skeptical of the idea that we are so much more competitive than other societies. I was talking to someone last night about China and the importance of you know achievement and thinking about how this language, even if it doesn't necessarily resonate and even if it may become a joke like um, the Charlie Sheen has been, yet it still catches on. And, you know, political speechwriters at, at the highest level, obviously, you know, President Obama's speechwriters deemed it a worthy catchphrase. So uh, it, it seems to have a lot to do with the societies, with our understanding and kind of the way we view things, um, sometimes even more so than than what we're doing considering everything in those terms and um you know that's that's definitely something you address here in the book mm-hmm. well let me let me stop you there for a sec i mean i think what you're pointing to is a is an important idea and but it's also a little bit uh, inaccurate i would say if you look at data on competitiveness however you want to measure it whether it's people saying we love competition or whether it's the idea that you know, we are raised to be, as children, for instance, to think that we ought to be better than the rest and we ought to aim to differentiate ourselves from our peers. And um, or whether what you learn later in school or you go to business school, for example, and you learn how to be a CEO and what it means to be a CEO of a company or a CFO of a company. If you look at all those things, um, or in sports, of course, or from a very, very early age, in terms of medals, numbers of medals, numbers of trophies, numbers of awards, how leagues are structured, If you look at that, actually, you will observe that uh, we are more competitive than the majority of countries in the world. So surely there are exceptions to this. And China is a fairly good example. But um, uh, in the case of China specifically, I would say that the Chinese uh, society is, of course, there's a billion point two people in China. And I would argue that the competitive mindset in China is actually limited to mm, somewhere between three and 400 million people. It's not as pervasive as it is in the United States. Having said that, uh, what you're pointing to is a very interesting idea, and that is, I think, something that I talk about in the book as well, and that is that uh, it's one thing to 
think about, you know, are they objectively competitive or not? Are we objectively competitive or not? And another is to pay more attention to the language. And what I try to do in the book is to suggest that, in fact, uh, even regardless of whether we are more competitive or not, the, the reality is that we infuse or inject the language of winning and losing very pervasively everywhere and uh, much more so than in, in a lot of other places. And that the injection of this language in everything from, you know, best speller in the world, in the United States to best company to best beer to best university to best, you know, state champion in baseball uh, has real consequences for how people from children to adults perceive of themselves and perceive uh, of others and moreover as a real consequence for how we structure our activities whether it's in the business world politics education athletics they're structured in a way that that's consistent with that language and the consequences of course of that is that we are very much affected by that and so many many people fear being losers and aspire to be winners which regardless of objective reality whether in fact we're more competitive or not in other ways, that's, that's a profound consequence for us, and that's something that uh, we ought to be paying attention to. I mean, if you think about Charlie Sheen, for instance, and, or Obama, uh, and by the way, I want to remind you that the 2011 speech was about winning the future. 2010, uh, Obama said, um, at the State of the Union address, said, you know, I will not accept number two uh, for the United States, uh, in the world, for the United States of America. So he was already talking about this, as we mm -hmm. need to be number one. And when you term things that way, when you, say to a, when you say to a country, China has better airports and China has better infrastructure or is it making bigger leaps than we are in infrastructure and the Germans have more R&D in, in, in science than we do and, and that's a problem because we want to be number one. That's a very, very particular way of looking at, at a, you know, for instance, an alternative could, could be to say, that's fantastic. The Chinese are actually working on a cure for cancer as are the Germans and I really hope they get it because, in fact, we can benefit from it why does the gap have to be the point of focus, you know? So, yes, it has real consequences. The language itself, as we all know as sociologists, is of real consequence for how we live, we live our lives. Yeah, it's interesting with this speech. I was paying, I think, much more attention to the language than I would have prior to reading your book. And just as you said, the focus was much more on being number one than necessarily the importance of the things that we are trying to get. I think what stuck out to me the most that he mentioned that the Koreans have better wireless access than, than we do. They've passed us in that. And I thought, like, how is that even of concern to, to the average American? You know, what, what kind of wireless access people in other nations have? Do we suffer because we're not number one in that respect? Mm -hmm. it, but that talking about where we stand as a nation and then thinking about individuals, I think, was another thing. There seems to be a lot of tension in the idea that we're supposed to be number one as a nation, and then there's a lot of different levels of competition, especially he, was, he spent a good amount of time talking about education, uh -huh. and obviously being that you're both a professor and, and a parent of young children, um, this is probably int of interest to you, but there's this race uh, race to the top, his education program, and so um, it's like individual students competing amongst themselves, but then classes and schools competing against each other. And it seems like we're supposed to be able to maintain this kind of consciousness of all these different types of competition, which don't necessarily fit together. I mean, one day your classmate is your teammate, and then the next day is your opponent. 
Uh-huh. You know, so, so there's definitely a lot of confusion, and you, um, you, you definitely focus on how this language contributes to the confusion. But kind of to get back to the book itself, early on in the book, you point out that a lot of what we're seeking through this process of competition is differentiation. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? Well, yes, there are several things that what I urge people to do, I guess, not us, the people in general, but I mean, the readers and just us in general to do is to think about what really lies behind our compulsion to win. Because we know that if you just stop and think about it, you quickly discover that despite our rhetoric, we're not necessarily interested in winning for winning's sake uh, at a personal level or in other, in other ways. Because if that were the case, then, as I say in the book, you know, we would just make sure that we win all the time as individuals. We would go play you know, basketball with five-year-olds and chess with three-year-olds and whatever we like to do, and you know, we would win every single time. So uh, there's something else behind, hiding behind our desire to win and, uh, on the negative side, our fear, anxiety of losing. And so one of the things that I emphasize is this notion of differentiation, but it's not just differentiation, but differentiation from our closest peers. If you think about, even in the case of Obama and his speech, but also in the case of, uh, you know, say, uh, athletic competitions, in the, whether it's the professional sports or college level or educational um, competition, or politics even, what you always compare yourself with is not people who are very different from you, but people who are actually in principle until the competition is over, quite close to you and in fact undifferentiated from you. So that uh, the purpose of competition is to test and see whether in fact you can differentiate yourself from those who are in principle until then potentially uh, at the same as you. So if you look at the biggest rivalries between teams or, or businessmen or corporations, Pepsi and Coca-Cola, for example, it's really, that's where the concern is. Are we different from Pepsi, you know, if you're Coca-Cola? It's not, are we different from McDonald's? It's not, are we different from The Gap? Are we different from Pepsi, right? Uh, is Harvard different from Yale, right? Uh, is Michigan different from Indiana in basketball, right? Uh, and that's because therein, when you succeed in differentiation, and by the way, incidentally, at a lower level, you know, are we different from, is this town different from the town over, right? You're not concerned with the town that's 400 miles away. You're concerned with the town that's bordering you. And with Obama, you know, we're not concerned with how Zimbabwe is doing. We're not comparing ourselves to Zimbabwe, right? We're comparing ourselves with those countries that are daring to be or already are, in fact, close to us or have surpassed us to some extent. So you know, there's a test there. The test is, are we different from them? And the most pleasurable outcomes of competition come from the process of differentiation from those those who are at least in principle closest to you. That's where the most pleasure comes from. And uh, then you can finally say, then the competition achieves its purpose in our minds, which is to say, ah, you know, I now know that I am not... Uh, like that person, which until then someone could have said that you potentially were. So, you know, the basketball coach of one college that I spoke to said to me, I was hired and I was told that it doesn't matter what the, ultimately what the end result is from the season, as long as I beat, and he mentioned two schools, mm-hmm. and those two schools were the schools that are next to that college. They are considered to be exactly the same as that college. You know, they compete for students, they compete for money, they compete for whatever. You know, so if you can beat that, that's my goal. The president told me, you've got to beat X and Y. The rest of the season makes no difference to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and uh, so that tells you something, and it's an act of differentiation, which points as well, of course, to this notion of differentiation in, a, in terms of hierarchy. 
It's not me that differentiation that says I wear red and you wear blue, but rather I am better than you by virtue right. of it, one. You know, so it's a, it's got an element of hierarchy in it, and somehow we derive satisfaction and meaning from that hierarchy in the negative sense. It suggests that until then we lack a proper degree of the, in our minds at least a proper degree of definition, a satisfactory degree of definition that we need to go through this process in order to acquire further definition for ourselves. Yeah, you you get to that later in the book. When we take winning as an affirmation of who we are, it says that before that, you know, there was some uncertainty about who we are. But you talk about several different paths or several different types of winners, not necessarily objectively so much as um, how we come to interpret people as winners. Mm-hmm. And losers, both. Right, right. Yeah. You know, one of the things that the book has as its mission is to deconstruct or maybe uncover or, or shed light on the architecture of those two concepts. So it says, you know, where, where the, what do they really mean, right? And so one of the questions that I pick up is, you know, in our society's view, when does, how does one become a real winner and how does one become a real loser? And what you discover is that there are multiple paths to, you know, what I call to becoming a, a perennial or eternal winner or to become a perennial or eternal loser. These paths, by the way, are not symmetrically opposite to each other, which suggests that winning is, in fact, not the opposite of losing. And that's something that people don't really realize. But our conceptions of the loser are actually not, you know, the mirror image or the opposite, rather, of, of our conceptions of winning. But that's one thing to keep in mind. But So the, the concepts are not structured in a symmetrical way. But if you think about winning, you know, there are at least, I identify four paths to being a winner. The first path uh, is that you win, 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 win all the times. And in that case, you sort of, you know, elicit awe. And, you know, people look at you and say, gosh, I you never drop one. You know, who are you? How do you do it? Right? And it creates a certain amount of awe and admiration in the eyes of others. And that's just one path. The other path is that uh, you um, lose all the times, but then you, you really win the big one. Or you're able to turn it around and win a big one. And so you lose, 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 and then you win a big one. Uh, the Red Sox in, in 2004 come to mind. And that particular victory is sort of the comeback kid, right? It's, sort of, it's, it's in all of uh, Rocky's movies. It's in uh, Rudolph Red, the Red-Nosed Reindeer story. It's in a lot of our stories. It's the comeback kid. You know, you're at the very end, and you come back, and you win the big one. And that inspires a very different kinds of emotions and understandings in the viewer's mind and, in the, of course, in the competitor's mind. Very different kind of winner. There's a third winner. Uh, the third winner is the winner that, you know, loses and wins sometimes, wins some, loses some, but the ones that they win somehow are re- very revealing of their characteristics. So the image that I have is, you know, you win some, lose some, and then you do a, uh, an heroic act. The example I use is there's a father and mother are sleeping in the house with their kids and a thief breaks in and, uh, you know, one of the parents stands up and fights the thief and, you know, and uh, saves the family from a terrible event or outcome. And that person becomes a winner. You know, he, the, the, she stood up and rose to the occasion. And until then, that person may have won some, lost some, but there it is. You know, it's a revealing win. And then, of course, there is the... And all of these things, by the way, the first three I've mentioned, have all to do with outcomes, i.e., you know, you want something of relevance and of importance that reveals something about you, that says something about you. But unbeknown to us, really, until you think about it, there's a fourth path to being a winner, and it's kind of counterintuitive, and that is you lose all the time. But uh, in the process of losing all the time, you fought like a winner. And uh, somehow we are interested in that and reward people when appropriate, when, when in fact outcomes are not positive, 
then we say, boy, you know, but in my heart you're a winner because you fought like a winner, because your spirit was the spirit of a winner. And there is the process that we're paying attention to, which until then, for the other three types, we ignored. Here, we pay attention to the process, and we say, ah, there's something about your mindset. Forget about outcomes, something about your mindset that, that is a winning mindset. And that inspires different and other kinds of connotations and understandings and emotions in our minds. Uh, on the loser side, I'll just give you, if it's okay, the other path to being loser. I can only actually think of three. One is the person who win, wins, wins all the time and then drops the big one. And uh, Al Gore comes to mind uh, when he failed to win the 2000 elections. He had basically won all his life until then. He had gone to Harvard. He was a senator. I mean, everything was, was a plus, you know, and then dropped that big one. And even though he won the Nobel Prize afterwards, people don't even remember that. They will remember him for basically the loss in 2000 uh, or Pete Rose in baseball. Mm-hmm. And those are different kinds of losers, you know, different subcategories of that path. You know, you lose, you lose the big one that you should have won, or you lose the big one because you cheated, and therefore you're a loser, you know, and, and so on. So that's one kind. The other kind is the, you know, is the opposite of what I told you in terms of uh, the, the father or the mother who gets up in the middle of the night to confront the thief. It's actually the, the father and the mother who fails to do so because he or she's afraid. So you drop, you drop a big one amidst some pluses and minuses in your life. You drop a big one. The third is actually happens to be the same as the last kind of winner for the winner side, and that is you lose, 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 lose all the time, but uh, you also have a losing spirit, and then and then we say, well, you're a loser because not so much because of the outcome, but because you well, there's two variations there. One, I, one is because you didn't try, and that's why you're a real loser. Your spirit, you know, your, your tenacity wasn't there. The other way is because you're a fool. You know, you try, but you're just an idiot and you don't get it and you keep on losing. And both, those are two subtypes of that kind of loser. So you can see there are very different paths and there are very different kinds or types of winners that come out of those paths. And all of them are very much alive in our collective minds. Yeah, it seems to me that part of why these multiple paths exist is that different people or even the same person at different points may kind of end up latching on to the idea of, of one or another of those different types, uh, whichever kind of suits them at the moment. I'm thinking even of Charlie Sheen and, you know, not to get into trying to psychoanalyze him or anything like that, but at times he he's talking about himself as if, you know, he's always he's been the winner that wins, wins, wins. And at other times he'll kind of admit a certain, uh, you know, maybe admit certain mistakes but you know, talk about how he's you know he's completely focused now and he's he's mm. channeling something different and and I think that it's probably a pretty um, probably pretty common I, I think with the underdog or, or you know the, the comeback winner it seems to me part of the reason that we love uh, underdogs is that it's often easy for those of us who aren't constant winners to imagine ourselves as that type of winner because it means that that possibility is kind of always open mm-hmm. to turn things around. You also talk about the different prizes, uh, the different things that we win. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, right. I'm still thinking about what you just said about Charlie Sheen, incidentally. And 
you're right that he uses, deploys different rhetoric at different points in time. But however, I also want to say that you said use the word, you know, whatever suits a person best. But but the reality is that sometimes we get to pick and sometimes we don't get to pick. So right. in Charlie Sheen's case, he seems to be picking whatever seems to come to his mind and he just said, A, yeah. B, whatever is convenient. But but uh, when you're in, in many, many cases, most of us find ourselves in situations where we are subject to these categorizations by others or mm-hmm. ourselves without being cognizant of the fact that we've gone from type A to type B, for example. And then we uh, submit ourselves basically willfully, whether consciously or not. But ultimately, we, we accept that. We accept it and then struggle through it. So I, I don't know that it's always, you know, always out of convenience that we jump around or stay with one. But the uh, the prizes, mm-hmm. you know, the prizes, first of all, there are three prizes. You know, one is differentiation. Uh, there are two other that I talk about. One is uh, space. And here I mean to say both physical and uh, mental space. And it's a subtle concept, but, well, half of it is subtle, half of it is not subtle. The, the physical side is simple. Winners win more space in, in our society. So... You know, winners have bigger cars. If you win, you get more space. You get you get bigger houses. You get more than one home. You get bigger offices. You're buffered physically from the world by, say, a secretary, the workplace that shields you from noise from outside. You may have a corner office that are higher higher up in the building. You know, in the middle of the you know in a cubicle with all the others. So we get space, and uh, space is a very important thing. Physical space is a very important thing in American history. The Declaration of Independence has a famous sentence in there, you know, a phrase in pursuit of happiness. But uh, many historians think that actually originally the formulation for that was the pursuit of private property. Uh, It's very much part of American, you know, psyche to want Mm -hmm. space. And and winners seem to be getting that. But uh, also winners uh, seem to be getting mental space. And that is, uh, if you win, one of the prizes you get is that you basically are allowed, uh, you, you can silence your critics, you can silence even your internal critics, you know, your internal mind doubting yourself. You feel like you're finally allowed to be. You are more legitimate, you know, you are, you're okay, I've won, I've succeeded, I can rest, you know, I don't have to listen to you anymore, I don't have to hear you, I can ignore criticisms. That's a very important thing. The other thing that's the third kind of prize that I talk about is the concept of, it's kind of related to what I just gone over, but it's the concept of being right. There's a sense in which when we win, uh, it, it, we feel as if our judgment, our, our mindset has been proven to be correct, that our interpretation of events, our deployment of the skills we need in order to win, our judgment effectively is correct, is more correct, is more on, on point than our competitors. And that is what, you know, what coaches tell you, you know, you need to be more focused, you need to be, you need to accurately understand what's going on. That's how you will win, right? And that interesting, interestingly gets transported from, a, from the specific event on hand uh, so it's not as if you, because you've won at squash, uh, you have a, a more righteous understanding of squash, but somehow you as a whole person are more right than the person you have defeated. And uh, so there's a generalization that comes from victory as something specific that gets transported to something much more general. And this is, you know, this is the example of the miracle of on ice in the 80s when we beat the Russians at hockey. And because we won at hockey, we, we concluded not just ourselves, but the coaches, the players, everybody watched that uh, the capitalism and democracy are superior to socialism because we won at hockey. 
Mm-hmm. And the same thing happened, by the way, with Fisher, Bobby Fisher in chess. Uh, when he beat the Russian competitor, and it was, I believe, in the 70s, uh, it was conceived as a victory for capitalism. And that's how it was framed by the media. That's how it was framed by the players themselves and the, and the public. So there is a general sense that if Michael Jordan is very, very good at basketball, then or Tiger Woods, to name somebody more, more recent, if he's very good at, at golfing, uh, he's more righteous in a way. And... Therefore, when we discover him not being righteous or having a good judgment in other respects, uh, we're shocked by it because our assumption was, well, if he's great at golf and he's winning there, he must have a winning attitude and he must be doing things right everywhere else. Same thing with Bill Clinton when he was caught with Monica mm-hmm. Lewinsky. Uh, we said, well, how could it possibly be? He's so good at, he's so smart, he's so intelligent at politics. What's he do, you know, you know, and so on and so forth. So this generalization towards being right is extremely important. Behind all of these prizes, and there are more, but these are the three primary ones, really what we get is is the biggest prize of them all, which is the affirmation that we properly belong and are legitimate in this society. That's the biggest prize, ultimately. At stake, what we're looking for uh, in our search for victory and fear of loss is confirmation that that we're okay. Unfortunately, as I argue in the book, we'll never get it because we're using the wrong language, the wrong means to get to it. Mm-hmm. It, you know, not to use Charlie Sheen as a, a foil to the the whole interview, but what I find so fascinating is he kind of makes explicit some of the things that that you uncover, which you know we wouldn't really want to. Most people wouldn't want to tell their peers, "Well, I'm a winner and you're a loser because I have a, a bigger house and a nicer car." Um, you know, even if we do see things that way, and some of what he's come out and, and done is essentially say just that, mm-hmm. you know. I have a lot of stuff that you people don't have. I have access to places, and I've done things. Mm-hmm. And um, On the one hand, it, you know, it makes us laugh and, and might make uh, some of us outraged. But on the other hand, it, it kind of, um, in some ways, I think it holds up a mirror to America. It, is this really what, what everyone is after? Mm-hmm. You know, and is he in some way right? Um, That's right. You know? That's right. So it's, uh, it's actually... Initially, when when I had read about the physical space as one of the prizes, I was like, well, yeah, I guess so. Um, but there's got to be more to it than that. And I, mm-hmm. I mean, it kind of turns out looking rather shallow, but I think it, yeah, it's a very real aspect of. Uh, it's probably the easiest way to um, quantify it or to see it objectively. Mm-hmm. You know, that proof. Yes. No, I think it's a very sharp um, comment there, and. Um, you're right, I think. I, I share with you the view that what Charlie Sheen is doing in some ways is almost uh, without any you know, sense of, of, of no shame, right? Saying, I have all these things, you know, I have money, I, I have fame, and I'm doing precisely uh, what essentially most of us would like to do. And why should I be worried? What's wrong with it? What's wrong with it? You see, I'm, I've wanted all these things, and um, you know, as a winner, I get to do certain things, and I just do them. But uh, so it's quite interesting. You're absolutely right. That it is interesting. I'd like also to add something as well that we haven't covered yet, and that's another twist to the whole thing. You know, we use the word access. And uh, in the book, I talk about talk about forms, and I rely on Gerd Zimmel, 
you know, the German sociologist uh, who was, you know, obviously concerned with forms in, as a way of explaining social phenomena. And if you think about not so much prizes, not so much types of losers and winners, but rather forms of winning and losing and ways and, and how winning and losing shapes your relationship to the rest of the world, you will discover that there are actually different things at work. So, for example, sometimes winning can be about just simply having access to things. So when you win a ticket at the Opera House, you have access to the seat for that day. The seat does not become yours. It's not physical possession. You know, or you win custody you know, of your children. Or you win a dinner with Brad Pitt, right? You have access to that person. But, you know, and the access is usually future-looking. Future so you've won this thing and it allows you, you want a plane ticket, right? So you go on a plane ride. But then there are... You know, other forms of winning and losing. Uh, so, for example, it could be that if you think about wars or uh, athletic events or prizes you've won or other, other such things, or court cases, often it's about events and how they unfolded. And victory means that, the, that those events unfolded in the, in the way you wanted them to unfold. Uh, so you've won a basketball game. And that, what that means, you don't own the basketball game. You don't have access to the basketball game, right? You you dictated the terms in which that game unfolds. The same thing with war. And all that, those kinds of victories or losses are backwards looking. They look back and say, I did this over that, you know. And that creates all sorts of different challenges because they're over, right? So you have to think about, hmm, what's next, a la Michael Jordan. And then there are, you know, other instances where winning and losing means acquisition of physical physical things or intangible things. So you may you may win a car or you may win a prize, you know, best student of the year or something. And those are physical or non-physical ownership of things. Um, so what Charlie Sheen is doing is essentially he's saying, I have access, you know, I'm a winner because I have access to things. I'm a winner because in the past I had things go my way, you know. I'm a winner because I own things. I own things physically and I own things symbolically right mm -hmm. yeah and all those things are different if you win a lottery ticket it's one thing if you win a prize another thing if you win you know whatever and all of them come with challenges pluses and minuses if you will problems uh, advantages and disadvantages but of course we never think about it that way but that's exactly what they are and that's why that, that's why you know one of the things that i perhaps want to write more on is this notion of um when something is over and you've won or lost that is a very specific the completion of something uh, whether it was a positive or negative, uh, understood in those terms, brings you to a place that's a very interesting place to be. Uh, you know, you've won a war, then what happens next, right? And that's uh, that's um, something to, worth thinking more about. And incidentally, uh, today is, is uh, Friday, April 8th, and we're in the last few hours of the day and uh, of the workday, and uh, we still don't know whether there is a budget resolution to the American government, you know, whether the United States government will, have a, will be funded going forward or not. They may shut down government. If you look at the rhetoric that's going on, it's all about the Republicans want to, it's, not about, it's no longer about the issues, it's the Republicans want to, you know, want right. a symbolic victory. Yeah, who's going to win? Yeah, want a symbolic yeah. victory, and the Democrats are saying, we want, you know, yeah. yeah, whatever. So. Right. Well, and also, I mean, the whole winning the future thing was essentially um, Obama coming out to cheerlead for his budget, you know, mm. which is it's also interesting to think that so much of our understanding of what makes us winners in the first place um, can't really be quantified. And yet, you know, this budget is going to kind of buy us the future. You know, this is how mm. we. This is how we win the future. We allocate money here. We you know, mm. change this. We slash this. You know, even though it'll be difficult, and um, 
yeah, it, but see, it's, uh, but see that that's exactly that it's a perfect illustration of the confusion that it creates because um, you don't win the future. It doesn't mean anything to win the future. Mm-hmm. The future doesn't exist, and you can't win it, and nor can you lose it. It's a it's a terribly terribly um, confusing and loose, terribly confusing and loose phrase that has no meaning to it. So yeah, you can do this and then and then you can get better math scores, I guess, over five years from now, or less pollution, or people live a year longer. Is that winning? I would say why why call it that and not why why do you need to call it that? Why not simply say we want to have smarter students, we want to have healthier people, you know, we want to have a yeah. cure for cancer, we want to have better airports. That's it. You don't need to say right. we're going to win in the future. Because then it's, it's yeah. what happens then, you go on a circuitous a loop around what really matters that takes you into places that you don't need to be at and, and concerns and worries and anxieties you don't need to deal with. It's not, you're not a loser if you raise your score by 30 points as opposed to 60. Why are you a loser? Why are you a winner? You just have raised your score from 30 to 60. That's all that has happened. Right. Um, one of the things that struck me... Um, you know, one one of the the things that Obama uh, was saying that by the year 2020, we would be leading the world once again in the number of um, or the percentage of uh, college graduates. And I was thinking, well, that win is contingent on the performance in that respect of other countries. So you know, try as we might and as, improve as we might, that's dependent on other people losing you know, if you're going to put that label on it um sure it, you know if there's all this emphasis on winning I mean, what it comes down to is that we're understanding happiness as only being derived from whether or not we can consider ourselves winners mm-hmm. um, like you, you said you know we go in this loop around what really matters but i think it's because an uh, an uncritical understanding of things is that you know, in order to be happy, you you have to be the best or have the best. Um. Right, and uh, well, um, yes, and and I am of the opinion that if you use foggy language, inaccurate language, to uh, arrive at uh, an assessment of whether you're happy or not, you'll never get there. It will never be satisfactory. Mm-hmm. There are very very few people who, I think are winners and ultimately are truly happy. And the reason is that if you embrace that language, there's always a chance of you becoming a loser. I mean, in the, except for very few people, perhaps, and, and circumstances. But when you embrace that language, it's a language of antagonism. It's a language of, of challenge all the time. And it's a question, it's a language of, um, you know, potential lose, loserdom, right? So, you know, why not instead figure out exactly in more precise language what it is that you really would like to do with yourself as a country or as a person or whatever, as a company. And instead of saying, you know, we are number one at this and that's what makes us happy, you know, Budweiser, the king of beers, you know, uh, I'd rather say, what do we really want to be? We want to make, you know, good beer. We want to make, you know, we want to be a company where people are happy and fulfilled and, and our happiness, yes, will depend on whether we achieve those objectives. Incidentally, on the education thing that you mentioned, uh, as you all know, the secondary school system of the United States is very different than higher education is very different than, say, European and Asian countries. So that it doesn't really mean anything to compare our graduation rates with, say, graduation rates of Europeans because the school system there is completely mm-hmm. different. And in the figure of what counts as college graduates, you would have, for instance, graduates from uh, community colleges, 
graduates from uh, you know four-year liberal arts colleges, which you know none of these things exist in Europe. They're all great things, but they they're not comparable to what exists in Europe, both in terms of length of education and in terms of the kind of education that kids get in Europe. They're totally two different beasts. So not totally, but rather different beasts. So it really is is comparing apples to oranges when you're saying, well, we are graduating more kids from school, from college than you know Germany. Therefore, we are winning at that. I mean, it, it makes no sense to compare that. So, but that's another example. That's another example of what does it mean to do that? Why, why even embark on that comparison? Why worry about that? Why measure it? Why go and make special effort to consider those those metrics in the first instance and not use other metrics, uh, more precise metrics? And you know, just recently, I heard, but I have to read up on it, that the French, uh, as you know, some countries talk about um, gross national happiness as an important thing. Not GDP, for instance, the Kingdom of Bhutan does that. It says we're not going to measure our success, in, you know, in GDP, but rather gross national happiness. Well, the French have just last week, I heard, decided that even that is not uh, accurate for them. That they're going to measure uh, ennui, which is a concept in French that that is actually boredom or kind of melancholic boredom. And they're saying we want actually, we want, believe it or not, we want our people to have a good dose of that. And, and uh, because that is the genesis uh, of good art, good ideas, good invention. If you're perfectly satisfied and happy, you don't create anything. Uh, and so that gives you an, an idea of a completely different mindset that one could embrace. That in fact right. it's okay to be, you know, somber and a little worried and uh, stare into the into the infinity and uh, feel a little slightly depressed. And that's that's actually to be embraced. You know, so that's quite quite a different mindset um, that that yeah. gives you a sense of contrast. Well, why don't you um, tell us a little bit about your experience in Denmark, since you, you just mentioned Europe, and particularly this set of ten principles. I think it's a Danish uh, philosopher that, you know, these kind of very different but very important principles or values that are kind of underneath this completely different mindset when it comes to winning and losing that you find in Denmark. Mm-hmm. Well, it was not a Danish philosopher, actually. It was, I believe, a Norwegian I think it was a Norwegian writer who wrote this fiction, mm-hmm. this novel about life in Denmark from like almost 100 years ago and said, uh, well, the Danes ultimately follow these 10 principles. They're called Yante's Law. And um, as a matter of fact, that most Danes, you know, his description was quite accurate. Virtually every Dane knows all about them. And they are effectively inculcating into the minds of Danes from a very young age, kindergarten and even earlier. Some Danes today will tell you that they're not completely embraced, that they don't really believe in all of them, and that inside they're being questioned. But, uh, you know, yes, maybe a little bit, but it's very much there. And mm-hmm. they say that the 10 principles, I'm not going to list them all for you, but, uh, you know, uh, they say things like, uh, don't believe you're smarter than, than us. Don't believe that you're better than anybody else. Uh, don't believe that anyone cares about you, and so on and so forth. If you land in Copenhagen and go to the main square in Copenhagen, you will see a sign for Carlsberg Beer. Uh, or you can go to their website and uh, in the main square of the capital of the country. And in reference to one of the biggest and most known exports, Carlsberg Beer, you know, there aren't that many Danish companies we we know of. Uh, it says uh, Carlsberg Beer, probably the best beer in town, mm. uh, as opposed to Budweiser, king of beers, right? And that tells you a little bit about the mindset. So, yes, I mean, I was there for a year, and I have a position there as a visiting professor at the Copenhagen Business School. So I've been going back and forth for almost 10 years now uh, to Denmark. And I've learned a little bit what life looks like there. And there is definitely a, a much more of a sense of collectivity and um, of, of equality 
of uh, a desire not to, in fact, differentiate yourself from others. Uh, winners are tolerated as long as, uh, as they lift everybody else up with them. That's basically how people put it. You can be a winner, and that's okay, right? but as long as you're winning doesn't make other people's worse off or, or leaves them where they were before. You know, so, for example, we play basketball. The other team won, but it was a good competition because even the losing team played better than they ever have, or they were challenged, so they, they, they tried a little harder than normal. Then everybody's better off, and then, then the winning person can be congratulated as long as that person is not, or the team is not boastful about it. And that goes the same. The same holds true for you know companies that do well. You know the idea is you can win, but your victory has to benefit everybody else. And by the same token, if you lose, uh, we don't want you to fall too far behind. We will help you. We will pick you up and bring you back within the midst because we will be ashamed of having you behind. We will feel bad that we failed you. So, for example, if you look at surveys and people ask you know Americans and Danes, uh, so you know who is responsible for someone's failure? You know, when they go bankrupt or, you know, and most Americans say, well, um, they are, you know, who else mm-hmm. could it be? And uh, most Danes says, say society. Society failed them. We failed them. So, you know, there are, there are remarkable differences and these differences translate into or perhaps come from, uh, you know, public policies that they have with regards to education and business, competition in business, how they handle themselves in the world and what they pay attention to, how they deal with their prisoners, you know, in jail, their uh, criminals, the mentally retarded, and so on and so forth. It's uh, reflected in a number of spheres. Of course, that system has negative, I would say, you know, challenging aspects to it as well. Not everything is great about it, but uh, on the whole, it's very, very different from ours. Extremely different. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now, you're also very careful to say that you're not... Um you're really not making you know any kind of like flat value judgment. You're more making the point that other ways of understanding the world are very obviously possible. You know that uh, interpreting everything in terms of winning and losing is not a given. But also, you know, you can't just you know look over to another culture and mimic. You're kind of just suggesting that we as individuals take a second look at how we're how we're using this language in day-to-day life that we may not have been aware of before. Um, how have you found that you've been able to perform this conceptual hygiene? That's the term that you use. Yeah, um, yeah, well, that's a very good question. And, you know, in a way, I could have written a very different book and um, followed a different logic. In some ways, I could have defended our language, you know, because of many of the pluses there are, by the way, you know, that come from it, uh, such as, you know, we tend to achieve perhaps more maybe than the Danes do in some respects. Um, you know, the Danes don't have the equivalent of a Harvard, for example, mm-hmm. or they haven't, didn't go to the moon before we did, right? Things like that. So I think that, um, yeah, so the point would be that we want to be aware, we should be aware of the constructed nature of our, of our attitudes, societally constructed nature of our language, which for a sociologist, it's almost a given, but for most people, it really isn't. And because it is constructed of the potential multiplicities that are available. Now, we said that, I don't recommend that we become like Denmark. It would be both probably not desirable and ultimately not feasible anyway, because we're a much larger, more diverse population, so on and so forth. Different history, different everything. Uh, but I think that we can move in a direction that could be healthier for us. So I suggest that we undertake the process of conceptual hygiene, which means that we clear up clear up our language and try to use 
try to use words that are closer to the truth of what we're really after when we go around our lives. And so, you know, um, personally, my own personal life, uh, it feels, and I think, by the way, I've given, I presented this book in a number of places, uh, town libraries, I'm going to do a hospital uh, where pediatric doctors are being trained. There is, uh, you know, business people, radio shows. People are very, very interested in hearing about it. And it's very clear to me from the sense that I get from the people who are listening is that they're really waiting to be relieved from a certain duty. They want to hear, oh, it's okay then. I don't have to do that, you know. And it, they, you can almost hear the sigh of relief coming from them and saying, okay, I am relieved from the duty of having to do X, Y, Z. It's okay if I don't. And if it's okay if I don't think of it that way. What happens is in my own life is that I become much clearer about what I really want, which is ultimately what I suggest in the book people do, is to force myself to say, it's not really the case that I want the award, or it's not really the case that I want that. I want to write a good book, or I want to run a little faster today because I'm interested in making my body healthier, or I want my kid to do well in school, not because I want him to be first relative to everybody else, whoever might be in his class or her class, but rather because uh, I want my children to be well-rounded individuals capable of making decisions in a certain way. So I think that uh, if you embark on that path, you are more able to be in tune with yourself and ultimately and ultimately happier, incidentally and importantly, happier even if the outcomes are not the ones you wanted because you will know that you are in pursuit of something that you, you know you were pursuing the right thing. Problems come when you pursue the wrong thing, and uh, when, you, when you're not sure what you're doing, then you're unhappy as you do it, and you're unhappy even if you get it or don't get it. If you know what you're pursuing, you're kind of happy as you're doing it, and oddly enough, you're happy if things turn out the way they do, in a good way, and you're kind of okay even if they don't turn out because your kind of consciousness is clean. It's an interesting concept, but I think it's true. Mm-hmm. You also mentioned that it can be potentially kind of a scary thing to take away this really easy way of, of seeing mm-hmm. things. And while when I think about things the way you just described, you know, making things a lot more clear, there does seem that to be that aspect of, of relief you know, from this burden of having to win, having to always be the best. At the same uh-huh. time, it doesn't, have, it doesn't necessarily have the same excitement, you know, that I think is um, kind of elevated to this level of comedy with what we've been seeing with Charlie Sheen. You know, it's it's like a big joke, but at the same time, you know, there's something, um, you know, this elation or on the other side, potentially like crushing defeat. Well, um, but I will, I would actually suggest that it's not so much excitement, um, David, but in fact, it's uh, a drug in that it's much easier not to think about things and use language that kind of serves as a placeholder mm-hmm. than to face the tougher questions. So if you told Charlie Sheen, use something different, stop talking about winning, what would he say? Mm. He would have a problem on his hands. Mm. He would have a problem. And it's not because he likes excitement. He would have a problem because he would be faced with the duty or the, the request to actually say what he really means. And I don't know that he has an answer. Much like I don't know what, you know, Whoever is winning these days in basketball or other endeavors would know if you stop them and said, stop using that language and you be closer to the truth. I think they would have a, a few moments of real panic. Uh, so I think that the, the language, in a way, serves as an excuse from having to think. Mm-hmm. Um, what we in our society 
and I consider myself American despite the fact that I was born in Italy, but for the most part, I grew up in this country you know, since I was 14. So, are afraid of is this vacuum. What would happen if we stop running? That's a frightening thought. And so it's just easier to keep on running. And I want to invite people to say, stop running. And then you you feel suddenly the treadmill stops going. It's quiet. You're not going anywhere. And then you got to kind of deal with reality. But it's, you know, it's much easier to keep on running. It hurts a little bit, right? But, right. but hey, I'm moving, you know, and that's what posters on, on that's another thing that led me to write this book is motivational posters on uh, in, in gyms it doesn't matter where you're going as long as you keep on running you know that kind of thing and I always looked at those posters and said I completely disagree it matters where you're going you know mm-hmm. of course it matters and when you get there maybe you don't want to run anymore I mean what's the point of running it's to go from one place to the next it's not running you don't run for running's sake I mean if you're exercising then it's for exercise's sake you know I mean whatever it is in other words, meaning and when losing is never are never ends. Uh, they're always means to ends, and we treat them as ends, but it's a mistake. Right. Now, obviously, this is just uh, you know this is just one book, and you've written others, and I know you're you're working on others. Mm-hmm. And, but do you feel like this kind of um, is you know become an important part of the way you're understanding modern society in general, or this project has kind of helped you mm-hmm. um, in other endeavors? I would, um, I'm going to disappoint you and say no. Uh, <laughs> and, that, and the reason is that I think this project was an example of many other concerns that I have with our use of language. I don't particularly care about winning and losing. I mean, it's just one. I could have picked others that are um, uh, equally important to me or more important to me, such as love, for example, mm-hmm. uh, or sex, for example, or other, uh, many other things, uh, family relationships where we use language in a way that uh, is very misleading and that creates a lot of fog around us. And uh, this is, an, this is an, it's a pretty good invitation because people respond to it, you know, uh, because there's a lot of anxiety about it. But it's just, it's almost an exercise in uh, what I would call in sociological terms, a call to, to engage in the analysis of the architecture of concepts. We have concepts, but we don't, take too much attention to understand their architecture. And uh, what I did here, uh, hopefully, is uh, you know, a look at how the, con- how the house is built in this particular area, but it's just an exercise. Uh, right. There are many others that need to be done. There right. are many, many others that need to be done. So it's not so much the, sub- the, the subject itself, exactly. but the yeah. method that you, uh, the approach that you take. It's exactly, and, and I don't, I've never really said this, but yeah, that, I mean, in a way, uh, you know, I don't really care about the subject matter as such. I mean, yes, I do, Peter, because I have an interest in it. But ultimately, um, it's just uh, one example, you know, of other of other things that I think we ought to think more about in a particular way. But ultimately, it's in a way, it's an analysis of language, right? Right. That's all it. Right. Well, hopefully, hopefully, we can uh, look forward to other uh, language probing books by Francesco Duina. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, thank you so much for talking to us, and um, take care. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to an interview with Francesco Duina, author of Winning, Reflections on an American Obsession, published by Princeton University Press. I'm David Philippi, and I've been your host for the New Books and Sociology podcast, part of the New Books Network. We hope you enjoyed the interview and tune in again next time.